All right, and welcome to the workshop, 10 Strategies to Elevate, Revitalize, and Transform Your Career. Thank you for joining in today. We got a lot of great content for you, a lot of important content. So let's go ahead and just jump right in. All right, so my goal for you is that by the end of this workshop, you're going to know 10 strategies to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career, whether you're serving as an OD practitioner, a leader manager, serving as a business transformation consultant, or really any other person that's tasked with solving complex adaptive challenges in complex social systems. So who is this workshop for? This workshop is for you if you feel that you've stagnated professionally, feel stuck, and are questioning your next steps. This workshop is for you if you're feeling overwhelmed from a fast-changing world and seeking a true north. This workshop is for you if you want to feel more relevant and offer more impact and value to your clients and or employer. This workshop is for you if you want to pursue more fulfilling work that you care about and enjoy. This workshop is for you if you need a way to increase your income by extending your knowledge, skills, and capabilities. And lastly, this workshop is for you if you're just simply looking to differentiate yourself from others to create a personal competitive advantage in the marketplace. All right, well, if you don't know who I am, let me go ahead and introduce myself. My name is Randall Scott, and I'm the founder and managing partner of Henosis Partners, a dialogic-based OD training, education, and consulting firm that specializes in two things. One, we help facilitate organizational transformation through conversation. That's the consulting side of our business. And two, and maybe more importantly, we help OD change management professionals like you elevate, rejuvenate, and transform their careers to offer more, be more, and live more. Now, I have over 25 years of highly diverse experience serving in multiple different organizational improvement roles, and I've done this in 10 different industries, serving both as a management consultant and functional leader. I am also an award-winning author of four books, and my most recent book, Target Operating Model 2025, was published just a few years ago. For what it's worth, my educational profile includes a Master of Arts in OD and Leadership, a Master of Science in Management Information Systems, and a Bachelor's in Finance. I also have 10 different certifications, ranging from systems thinking to serving as an Agile Scrum Master, to change management, and to strategic foresight. Now, despite all this training and education, like you, I still have much to learn. Achieving mastery in any profession or pursuit is a lifelong endeavor. And so with that in mind, let's get started. All right, so there is one thing I want to discuss before we get started, and that is your story is my story. You see, I too have felt stagnated professionally, felt stuck, and questioned my next steps. I too have felt irrelevant, invisible, and isolated, that leadership felt my work lacked impact and value. I too, like you, want to offer more, make a greater contribution in the world, feel good about my work. I, too, have a desire to earn more, to live the type of life I always dreamed of and hope to live. I, too, want to differentiate myself, to present a unique personal offering in the marketplace. And I, too, have felt the overwhelm in adapting to an increasingly complex, volatile, and fast-moving world, seeking a true north to guide my efforts. 
Well, stay with me. In the next 90 minutes, you will learn 10 strategies that I applied to elevate, rejuvenate, and transform my career. Strategies that I know can help you too. So let's begin. All right, so the first strategy, and in no particular order, is to learn and leverage multiple digital canvas tools to design and facilitate large group processes. So this is effectively about us transitioning from having worked in physical places to now working in virtual spaces. If there's one thing that COVID did is it ushered in the digital age and we're not likely going back. Now, there are a number of tools that you can use online to help you both design and facilitate large group processes, one of which is Mural. Perhaps you've used that tool. Another one uh, similar to Mural is Miro, also a great tool. LucidSpark is another leading tool. Stormboard. Google has their own version, which is Jamboard. And then there's Session Lab. So effectively, all these tools will do the same thing. They have the same functionality. They all have free accounts. And so if you're operating on a budget, that's helpful to know. The one notable difference here is that Session Lab is a different type of large group process tool. It's meant to help you design your large group processes, the different sort of activities that you're going to uh, work through in a workshop setting. Whereas the other tools like Miro or LucidSpark, these are tools that uh, you actually use to conduct your actual activities or your exercises within your large group process. So uh, oftentimes you'll use Mural in combination with Session Lab or Miro with Session Lab, depending on your preference. We've all had a transition to operating and using virtual spaces. I would encourage you to learn multiple of these tools as opposed to just one tool. So this is strategy number one. The second strategy is to adopt a hybrid OD approach to your practice and work. Now you might be asking, what is hybrid OD? Well, hybrid OD represents an integration of diagnostic OD, dialogic OD, and experiential OD methods, tools, and techniques to solve an organization's most intractable challenges. And the reason that we need hybrid OD is that increasingly, the types of challenges we're being asked to help facilitate and solve as practitioners are of the complex variety. They're complex adaptive challenges, and Diagnostic OD sadly is ill-equipped to do the job. You see, when Diagnostic OD got started in the late 40s through the 60s, the business environment was characterized by pliant competition and moderate growth. But today, our business environment is defined by increasing complexity and uncertainty. And in that type of environment, we need a different set of tools, a different toolkit to help us solve our contemporary challenges. With the integration of Dialogic OD, which takes an inquiry or participatory-based approach to problem solving, and experiential learning, which is about experimenting our way forward, we as change agents are actually better equipped to effectively and sustainably solve any complex adaptive challenge. And it's for all of these reasons that I say that hybrid OD represents the emerging future of organization development. Now, to learn more about Hybrid OD and as a thank you for signing up for this workshop, I've included a free ebook on Hybrid OD, which will provide you all the details that you need to know about this emerging methodology. 
All right, as a preview into the ebook, but also because hybrid OD can be a real game changer for you professionally, I'm going to define more deeply what hybrid OD is. So hybrid OD is a modern, rapid, inquiry-based, foresight-driven strategic learning model. Now let's understand what each of these components of the definition mean. So modern. Modern reflects a new understanding of the role and the amplified potential of integrating diagnostic OD, dialogic OD, and experiential learning into a powerful, accretive problem-solving methodology. Rapid represents the experiential sequence of hybrid OD and is reflective of the iterative method. So this is agile or the scrum method whereby self-organized innovation teams are delivering value every two to four weeks via pre-planned sprints. Inquiry-based speaks to the core of the hybrid OD model, whereby we leverage dialogic or inquiry-based tools and techniques to expose mental models, cognitive biases, and limiting beliefs of people to bring about transformative change. Foresight-driven speaks to Strategic foresight, which is a differentiating social technology of the hybrid OD model, whereby we intentionally seek out and engage with the emerging future to transform the present. Now, what we're really talking about here is engaging the edges, the fringes, the periphery of things, engaging the marginalized in a system, and really doing this at three different levels. Engaging the edges at system edge, which represents your organization. Engaging at transactional edge, which represents the industry that you work in, or at contextual edge, which represents the ecosystem that your industry operates within and even beyond. So foresight opportunities manifest within each sequence, the diagnostic, the dialogic, and the experiential of the hybrid OD model. So let's understand each of these next. So strategic foresight shows up first within the diagnostic sequence. In this sequence, we're engaging the edges of the organization and the external transactional environment, depending on the nature of the problem we're trying to solve or the scope of the system that we're engaging with. We do this by conducting stakeholder and dialogue interviews, surveys, conducting focus groups, conducting assessments, and doing data and document harvesting. Our emphasis when engaging the edges in this sequence is on maximizing diversity, on highlighting and exposing difference amongst and between people, their perspectives and their point of views. Strategic foresight also shows up in the dialogic sequence. Here, we're engaging the edges by designing dialogic or inquiry-based participative events for highly diverse others to share, to listen, to learn, and to engage in potentially multiple learning journey sojourns into the field. So for example, one of the things that we may do is to take a field trip or conduct a site visit into the ecosystem and beyond of where the organization operates. And we do this to learn from the people at the edges, the front line. It is at the edges of an organization or the front line that most innovation occurs, and so naturally this is where we want to go to learn about strategic foresight, to pull the future back into the present so that we can transform the present. Another example is that we may form a panel of experts where we commission external resources, aka remarkable people, to form a panel to provide and engage in divergent debate, discussion, 
This often broadens the horizons of all involved, as the people that have been assembled come with different backgrounds, experiences, different perspectives on life, which allows for richer, more divergent, more broadened thinking for all involved. And last, strategic foresight could show up in the experiential sequence. Here, we're engaging the edges through exploratory lab work, through conducting novel experiments, where we're engaging the edges by literally experimenting our way into the future. All right, the last component of our hybrid OD definition is hybrid OD is a strategic learning model. As a strategic learning model, the intent or essence of hybrid OD is less about producing certain results or specific outcomes than it is about raw learning, learning about maybe how best to solve a problem or how best to exploit an emerging opportunity. Specifically, we are wanting to learn a number of things. One thing that we want to learn is about cause and effect, about interdependencies between parts or among parts within a system. We are wanting to learn about how best or where we should intervene in a system. Where is its high leverage points? We're wanting to learn how to leverage complexity. How do we create the conditions for change to occur? We're wanting to learn where do our knowledge edges lie? We're wanting to learn about diversity and how best can we leverage difference among each other. And we also want to learn how best to approach problem solving of complex adaptive challenges. Of course, there are many other things that we want to learn as well, but this gives you a good understanding of how hybrid OD is meant to be a strategic learning model. As a strategic learning model, we progress from planning to learn, which occurs in the diagnostic sequence, to inquiring to learn, which occurs within the dialogic sequence, to ultimately discovering to learn, which is what happens within the experiential sequence, where we're experimenting our way forward. And collectively, all this learning is strategic as it helps an organization adapt and respond faster and more adequately to change. All right, a third strategy to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career is to initiate and embrace a follow-the-energy approach to bringing forth the new. One thing that we have to acknowledge today is that we are operating in tuna-like conditions of turbulence, uncertainty, novelty, and ambiguity. And what is demanded by those conditions is that we, we have to adopt a just-do approach versus waiting to be told what to do. And for most of us, this represents a comfort zone issue. For most of us, we like to operate in the green zone, the comfort zone where things are safe, we feel safe. Sometimes we're pushed too hard or find ourselves in the red zone, the panic zone, where we're overwhelmed and, and really unable to learn. Where we see our greatest learning, however, is in the yellow zone, where we're pushed out of our comfort zone into the yellow zone. And while uncomfortable, this offers us the greatest opportunity to learn something new, to stretch our knowledge, skills, and capabilities. And what I mean by follow the energy is that we need to follow our own energy, our own instincts, and those of others that might follow or have the same instincts we have to pursue the new, to try something new, something novel. A good example of this is Darcy Winslow, who is the managing partner of the Academy for Systemic Change and who worked at Nike for over 20 years. And while she was there, she led Nike's advanced research department 
where she adopted a just-do approach or attitude to investigating and later changing the composition of materials used to produce Nike shoes, and in the process inadvertently ignited the global sustainability movement, the effects of which are still rippling out today. Following the energy is about you approaching what's important and interesting to you, and also having the flexibility to engage others in directions where they want to go, not holding hard or fast to a particular predefined agenda, but simply letting the energy determine where one or a group should go. A fourth strategy to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career, and I cannot emphasize this enough, is to focus on inner work, transforming limiting beliefs and patterns of yourself and of others. So what is required to understand the inner you? Well, the first thing is that you need to understand your mental frame, or as I like to say, your lenses of life. You need to understand the components of your mental frame, that is, the assumptions the beliefs, the values, and the expectations you have about things in life, and which ultimately determine what you see and how you think, act, and feel about happenings in your life. You need to understand your cognitive biases. Each of us suffers from one or more cognitive biases that we need to be aware of. We also need to understand our behavioral triggers. What triggers us to behave in ways that are unproductive? And we also need to understand the thinking process itself of how thoughts just simply arrive in the brain and our response to either acting on those thoughts or not. As I mentioned, there is a need not only for you to understand you, but also to help others understand their inner world as well. You see, how you show up when facilitating complex change events and how others show up to participate in those change events ultimately determines the extent to which a complex adaptive challenge gets solved or not. Developing an awareness of the inner you and leveraging such awareness in your daily work is a profoundly difficult habit to establish. I know as I've been working at it for the better part of a decade and I still have issues with maintaining my awareness of the inner me. But doing so is vital to create the conditions to solve your organization's most intractable challenges. All right, as inner work is difficult to understand just in terms of words, I've created a illustration that I think will help illustrate what it is I'm trying to convey. So performing inner work begins with really understanding our seeing and how we, how we see the world. Uh, as I mentioned on the, on the previous slide, each of us has our own frames of reference. And these frames of reference are the result of our lived history, the experiences that we encounter each and every day. They represent our biography in life. And while these are helpful, and they do help us get through our day-to-day, -day, they also represent a narrow view of life. In other words, they constrain us. Our frames of reference constrain what we attend to and what we therefore ignore. We can view sort of this window, if you will, these frames of reference as our horizon window or as the boundary structure within which we attend to things or not. Anything that lies outside of that horizon window or boundary structure represents cognitive blind spots for us. 
So the question is, what comprises our frames of reference? What specifically is determining what we see or don't see or what we attend to or don't attend to? As it turns out, our frames of reference or our lenses of life are comprised of a number of structures of assumptions, assumptions about our biography, our culture, education. There might be assumptions around our politics, psychological-based types of assumptions, or even social assumptions. All of these different assumptions together represent or form a web of meaning perspectives that we use to interpret all the events that are happening in our life. And collectively, all of these assumptions produce or result in habitual ways of thinking, acting, and feeling. We describe such things as habits of mind, meaning schemes, habits of expectation we have about certain things. And as I mentioned earlier, these also represent our cognitive biases. Now, these habitual ways of thinking, acting, and feeling actually manifest or articulated in the form of a point of view. And so therefore, any experience that we have in life ultimately becomes filtered through our point of view, through our beliefs, our value judgments, our attitudes, and our feelings. And so collectively, all of these things shape and inform our interpretations of every experience that we have in life. In other words, such things help us make meaning of our life. But it is when we are unaware that such things exist, that our point of view, or our lenses of life in this case, our narrow view, can lead to distorted and prejudiced sense-making, learning, innovations, and genuine change. Ultimately, we can summarize all of this in saying that the range of our seeing informs the range of our thinking, acting, and feeling. And we miss a lot in the process. Given the challenges with mastering inner work, I'm going to share with you what I believe to be the central challenge that, if you understand, will help you accelerate becoming more effective at not only understanding the inner you and how you can use that to your advantage, but also helping others understand their inner lives, which can result in better outcomes for all. So the main challenge for each of us is that we need to have the ability to suspend our thinking and acting in the moment. But to do this effectively, it requires that we also understand the stimulus response challenge. You'll notice in the illustration to the right that in between stimulus and response is space. Now, when I refer to stimulus, I'm talking about what someone may say to you that might trigger something, or an event you're experiencing in the moment that might be triggering something, or really any other stimulus that might be triggering a response. And your response is simply that. It's how you're responding to the stimulus. Now, the challenge that each of us faces is that the time between stimulus and response is literally a fraction of a second. Oftentimes, we just respond. We're not thinking at all. And for many of us, myself included, this is where you can get into trouble, where you're triggered by what somebody says or by something that's happening in the moment, and you result with a response that is unproductive, that deteriorates the situation further. So the question becomes, how can we widen our 
perceived time, our perceived space between stimulus and response to afford us an opportunity to respond with something that's more adequate or helpful or suggestive in the moment. Well, the solution is what I had mentioned earlier, is that we need to suspend our thinking and acting in the moment. And the only way that this occurs reliably is when we maintain a self-awareness of our thinking. And when we do this, not only does the quality of our listening improve dramatically, but also our ability to choose a more constructive response in the moment improve considerably. The main message here is that we can overcome the stimulus response challenge. We can overcome the fact that in between stimulus and response is a fraction of a second. We can overcome responding in unproductive ways. And the key to all of this is a self-awareness of our thinking. So one tool that can help us maintain an awareness of our thinking, our inner state, and more effectively address the stimulus response challenge is the ladder of inference. The ladder of inference is a tool that was first developed by Chris Argis and then later made famous by Peter Senge in his book, The Fifth Discipline. And essentially, the ladder of inference works bottom up where we're examining our actual experiences in the moment and assessing what the data is telling us and trying to do that in an unbiased way as possible. Actual experiences in this case could be verbal expressions that we're observing from others, facial expressions from others, could be any other visual element that we're observing in the moment. And as we're observing various facial expressions and verbal expressions and the other visual elements that are within our view, we're asking ourselves, what do these observations mean? This is the point where our mental filters kick in and we're either selecting certain data to attend to and other data that we're not attending to. In other words, we're trying to add meaning to what we're observing. And as we do this, as we observe ourself, and the thinking that's going on, we're asking, what assumptions am I making as I add meaning to what I've observed? As we talked about on a previous slide, it is our mental filters, our mental models that are largely responsible for adding meaning, for interpreting the events of our life. And so we have to ask at this point internally, what assumptions are we making as I add meaning to what I've observed? Then we observe our conclusions and determine how to act or, in some cases, not to act. Uh, again, not every stimulus requires an immediate response, and that's the challenge. It gets back to the phrase I mentioned earlier about this notion of suspending and redirecting. We suspend our response to what is perhaps stimulating a response and simply redirecting our efforts to focus on others and what they're saying. And it's this pause that allows us to ultimately respond in more constructive ways than perhaps we might do without first thinking about our thinking. The key in using the ladder of inference tool is that we need to remain unbiased, as objective as we can be, as we mentally traverse the ladder, from observing the actual experience at the bottom of the ladder to the actions we may or may not take at the top of the ladder. To the extent that we keep the ladder of inference in our mind, as we engage and converse with others, it provides us an opportunity to widen our perceived space of time. It allows us to respond with more constructive replies. 
A fifth method to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career is to learn and leverage multiple dialogic or inquiry-based methods. A great book that highlights over 60 different dialogic large group process methods is The Change Handbook by Peggy Holman. In this book, you can learn about methods such as the World Cafe, Open Space Technology, the Circle Method, Appreciative Inquiry, and so forth. Today, many OD practitioners identify as being an OST expert, an open space expert, or a World Cafe expert, or an appreciative inquiry expert. And while these are good things, it also limits your opportunities, your professional reach, and potentially may even compromise your effectiveness as you run the risk of utilizing a method that is ill-suited for the change management task at hand. Knowing of multiple large group process methods actually increases our opportunities. It increases our professional reach, and it prevents opportunities where we treat every situation with the same method. The key message here is to be a jack of many dialogic or inquiry-based methods as opposed to being a master of one. A training that I would recommend is that you attend one of the Art of Hosting events where they actually teach you four of the leading methods that are highlighted in Peggy Holman's book. You'll learn the World Cafe, Open Space Technology, the Circle Method, and Appreciative Inquiry. And between those four methods, you can do just about anything, solve any type of complex adaptive challenge in a dialogic or inquiry-based type of event. Later in this workshop, I'll share with you an illustration of a workshop that I designed using all four methods. A sixth method to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career is to be strategic, to integrate a strategic frame in all that you do. In a recent survey I conducted across multiple OD-related LinkedIn groups, over 50% of responding practitioners, a sample size greater than 100, indicated that leadership in their organization viewed their work and or organizational contribution as either non-strategic, that is below the radar, or limited to just HR or people-related tasks. Personally, I found these results both constraining and disappointing. As a profession, we can and we must align and integrate our work with achieving the strategic goals of the organization. Doing this will result in several benefits for both the organization and for you as an individual, including feeling better about yourself and the work that you do because the perceived value is that you're providing strategic or mission-critical work, and that there's true line-of-sight visibility between performing OD work or change work and achieving the larger or broader organizational goals. Another strategy to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career is to engage the emerging future to transform the present. It is a known fact that organizations who learn and innovate faster have a decidedly powerful competitive advantage over competitors who are unable to do the same. The question is, where does the best learning for innovations occur? In a word, they occur at the edges. So what does it mean to engage the emerging future to transform the present? I'm going to share with you an illustration that will walk us through the three different levels in which that we can engage the emerging future. 
The first level is to engage organizations at their edges. And what this illustration is trying to convey is that at the edges of an organization, we often find the skunk works teams, the innovation groups, the frontline staff, of course. This is where local innovations are occurring. This is where local innovations, in fact, are disrupting the status quo. And it's at the edges of an organization that will provide us clues or indicators on what's emerging, what's new, what's novel. And our challenge as OD practitioners or as change agents is to bring that emerging future back into the present. That is to the center of the organization for all the organization to learn from and apply. We can also engage the emerging future by extending our reach further to look at the industry edge. So for each of us, whether working for an employer or clients, those organizations operate within a contained industry. In that industry, there are a number of traditional mainstream competitors. However, there are also likely a number of organizations that operate at the edges, the periphery, the fringes of the industry. Organizations that actually serve as disruptors for all other organizations within the industry. These organizations might have highly innovative groups or highly innovative teams performing highly disruptive work for the broader, more mainstream industry. So our job here, again, as OD practitioners or change agents, is to engage with the periphery, engage with those organizations on the edge, at the edge of the industry, to learn from them and then pull that future back to transform the present in our own organizations. And lastly, we can extend our reach even further to engage the emerging future at an ecosystem level or even beyond. So this entails going beyond your industry to penetrate into other industries, into other ecosystems, in fact, and look for what industries are overly disruptive, what industries are far more advanced than your own, what industries are far more dynamic in terms of change than your own. And the goal when engaging at the ecosystem edge is the same as with industry edge or organizational edge. We're trying to learn what's new and novel and to pull the new and the novel back to transform the present. To the extent that you do this well, that is engage the edges of your organization, engage the edges of your industry, engage the edges of the ecosystem within which your industry operates, you create a significant competitive advantage for your organization. A great quote that captures the essence of this is that by William Gibson, who says, the future is already here. It is just not evenly distributed. So the message here is learn to see around the corners of things. Engage the emerging future and do that to transform the present. Another strategy to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career is to pulse faster, leveraging the iterative method, aka the Agile Scrum Framework. The Agile methodology has its roots in IT or information technology, but its application is universal. Let me share with you a little bit more about Agile and how it can apply to the work that you do as an OD practitioner or as a change agent. So the question is, why Agile? Well, for one, today we are operating in an Industry 4.0 world, which is quite different than how it used to operate as an Industry 3.0 world. 
If you're interested in learning more about Industry 4.0, I'd recommend that you read the book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution by Klaus Schwab, who is the head of the World Economic Forum. So what is Industry 4.0? Well, it can be characterized as three major shifts that are occurring. To begin with, the world is becoming increasingly globally connected. And this is occurring through two major movements, a movement of the internet of things where all things are connected. That is all devices are connected from your phone to your TV, to your microwave, to your house, to even your car. The other major shift connecting us globally is the internet of services whereby everything we do from banking to shopping to obtaining our groceries is connected now through the internet. Another major shift occurring is the integration of cyber with physical systems. And we see this in medical devices where nanochips are being inserted into the human body to provide diagnostic data to help with diagnosing conditions and informing certain treatments. We see the rise of self-driving cars today. It is not too much of a stretch to think that five or, or 10 years from now, we will all be experiencing self-driving cars in our major cities. And there are smart factories, which have been around for the better part of a decade or more, where they employ not humans to produce products, but yet robotics. And then there are several underlying technology trends that are driving all the above. Trends such as big data, cloud computing, digitization, and automation through AI and machine learning technologies. So all of these things collectively tell us that we have shifted, that we have moved from industry 3.0 to now industry 4.0, which is characterized by all of these things, being globally connected, cyber physical system integration, and these emerging technology trends. All of these things suggest that we need to approach our problem solving differently that we need to operate more quickly, more effectively than we have in the past. This is what Agile, or the iterative method, was designed for, to help us pulse faster. Another reason for why Agile is that the pace of innovation is rapidly accelerating. If you go back to the 1400s, when the printing press was first introduced, we can see that the pace of innovation was quite slow in terms of major innovations. We see that the telescope did not come until 200 years later in the year 1600. And then another 150 years before we saw things such as the steam engine or the telegraph. We saw the rise of cars around the turn of the century, the year 1900, the introduction of the telephone. Then we see even greater advances or innovations such as the man on the moon in the late 60s. It is at this point that we see a dramatic rise in the pace of innovation a tremendous acceleration in innovations across the globe, from the microprocessor to cell phones and DVDs to new social technologies like Google and YouTube and Facebook, to innovations bringing us right up to current days, such as the driverless car and now even delivery drones. So the pace of innovation is rapidly accelerating. And this trend also suggests that we should move to more of an iterative or agile change framework. As the pace of innovation is rapidly accelerating, so too is the need for the pace of introducing change accelerating. A third reason of why Agile is that much of today's work is no longer predictable 
and requires high agility. Up until about the 1980s, we were operating in a rather stable business environment. The business environment was characterized by pliant competition and moderate growth. And in that environment, the key strategies are efficiency and optimization of your operations. However, beginning in the 1990s and the rise of the internet, the world has become far less predictable. Today, our business environment is characterized by great complexity and uncertainty. That is, things are unpredictable. We can only see 20 feet ahead of ourselves at any given moment. And in this environment, organizations need to be highly agile. They need to be innovative. They need to experiment their way forward. In an unpredictable world, we don't have time to be overly efficient. We don't have time to necessarily optimize. Agility is what is required of the day. And agility is what Agile offers us as a change framework. A fourth reason of why Agile is that staying competitive depends on experimentation and rapid iterations that allow us to learn more quickly by failing fast. As with faster innovation comes faster results. So the method is try, fail, try, fail, and then ultimately you have success. That is the change method of today. Ironically, this is how things used to operate back in Thomas Edison's day, where they would try, fail, try, fail, and ultimately success would emerge. At some point, we moved away, the business world moved away from that type of operating framework. But today, an organization's survival, an organization's ability to be competitive, is fully dependent on their ability to experiment and learn faster than their competition. Finally, why Agile? Well, Agile is a rapid innovation framework that's attuned to help solve our complex adaptive challenges of today. You see, there are two major types of projects within the contemporary organization. There are the complicated projects where we know where we are, and we know where we want to be. And in fact, we know all the steps to get there. In other words, we've solved these types of problems before. However, increasingly, we are dealing with complex problems or complex projects where we know where we want to be and we have a hypothesis on how to get there, but we don't fully know all the steps to get there. As I mentioned earlier, at best, we can only see 20 feet ahead of ourselves. It's the equivalent of driving a car in the fog. And with each step taken, the path is illuminated that much further. When trying to solve these types of problems or these types of challenges, Agile is absolutely the right method to use. Agile is about introducing small probes or experiments to help us work through the fog, to help take those steps, which ultimately get us to where we want to be. So it is for all of these reasons that I say Agile is here and it is here to stay. If you're not familiar with the Agile framework or the Scrum framework, I would highly encourage you to learn both of these frameworks and integrate them into your work. All right, another strategy to help you elevate, revitalize, and transform your career is to leverage complexity and create the conditions for change to occur versus trying to make change happen. This is a mistake that change makers often make, which is that instead of trying to create the conditions for sustainable change to occur, they try to force change. They try to make it happen. And when we try to make change happen, 
The change is often less effective than it can be, and it certainly is not sustainable long term. So I'm going to share with you through illustration what it means to create the conditions for change to occur. So for our purposes, we're going to start with the assumption that we have a goal to solve for a complex adaptive challenge. And to solve for a complex adaptive challenge, it often requires new learning, certain types of new innovations, and certainly new patterns of behavior. And in order to get these types of outcomes, it requires a new approach. It requires an approach whereby we're looking to influence or alter the mental models of people in the system, their assumptions, their values, their beliefs. And so the way that we do this is that we bring agents, ideas, and events together. Agents in this regard refers to the people within the system. Ideas are their ideas, and the events are the dialogic-based or participatory-based events that we create to bring people together. Together, agents, ideas, and events represent a complex adaptive system, or CAS. Now, for a system to see itself, for a system to get to a point of changing its behavior, we need to bring the system into the room. And we do that, as I mentioned earlier, by bringing a number of diverse agents or system actors into the room that represent the entirety of the system. So all voices, all perspectives are represented. And by bringing the system into the room, what we're essentially doing is intentionally orchestrating complex conditions that will result in tension, conflict, uncertainty, disruption, and even turbulence. Now, you might be asking, why would we want to do this? This seems like a very high-risk affair. And indeed it is, but creating these types of conditions, as you'll learn in just a moment, is exactly the type of climate that we need in order to produce the type of transformative learning that we need to occur. So when you bring the system into the room and intentionally orchestrate these types of complex conditions, it results in emergent or adaptive behaviors. Behaviors such as creativity, changed mindsets, curiosity, transformative learning, and new knowledge. And the outcomes of these new emergent adaptive behaviors is self-organized and self-managed teams that are empowered to prototype the new via disciplined experimentation or probes. The emergent adaptive behaviors come about, as I mentioned, typically in a dialogic-based type of participatory event. So perhaps this is a world cafe event or an open space event or an appreciative inquiry type of event, or maybe an event that includes all three of those methods and more. When we bring the system together to talk in a dialogic way about the issues in their system and how to resolve those issues, typically great things happen. Things such as self-organization and self-managed teams now committed, engaged, and empowered to bring forth the new, to experiment our way forward. And so in order to do this effectively, you really need to understand complexity, or to be more specific, complexity leadership theory. We need to understand complexity to, number one, create the right conditions to catalyze nonlinear emergence in adaptive behaviors. It's the, this nonlinear behavior, these adaptive behaviors that result in the transformative change that we're looking for. In addition to that, we need to understand complexity to manage the tension, the energetics of the group, that is to hold the container. When you bring the system together to talk about the issues and how to resolve issues, as I mentioned, it's a high-risk affair. Intention is going to emerge. Conflict is going to emerge. 
And so by understanding complexity, understanding that these types of behaviors will emerge is important. It's important for you as the facilitator to more effectively hold the container. And lastly, we need to understand complexity to facilitate adaptive outcomes. The things that we're looking for, like innovation, learning, changed mindsets, and new narratives. All right, so with this as a backdrop, let me share with you on the next slide more details on how we actually create the context for transformational change to occur and the mechanisms by which we realize that transformational change. All right, with having looked through a visual of how to create the conditions for change to occur, I'm going to now walk you through a bit more detail on how specifically we actually do that. All right, to create the conditions for change to occur, it begins with us intentionally orchestrating a certain context. And the context is complex in its own right. So the context that we're wanting to orchestrate includes establishing asymmetrical interactions, that is, interactions that have different sort of power structures to them. So this would be the equivalent of bringing a senior executive and frontline staff together in the same workshop to work together in solving the organization's complex adaptive challenge. As we do this, we would also make sure that we are dealing with uh, an interdependent situation, such that in order to solve a particular problem or challenge, it requires one person working with other people. That is, no single person can solve the problem unilaterally. To solve the problem, it requires a number of different actors working together with a shared intention to achieve a common goal. Another aspect of our context that we're looking to create is to maximize the amount of diversity, and specifically cognitive diversity and demographic diversity. Both forms of diversity are important. This type of heterogeneity, in fact, is the key to bringing forth transformative learning, to bringing forth great innovation. It's the difference amongst us that serves as an asset as opposed to the problem. Another aspect of our context that we're looking to establish is to focus on an adaptive challenge. Adaptive challenges, by default, are very difficult to solve. We're not quite sure of what the root issues are or necessarily how to solve them. And so it does require bringing a large group of diverse people together to solve that type of challenge. So we're wanting, in this particular context, to be addressing an adaptive challenge. We're also wanting to structure the context such that there are dynamic connections, exchanges, and interactions that are occurring amongst and between people. It's these various connections and exchanges and interactions that actually lead to the emergence that we spoke about on the previous slide. We're also wanting to establish a form of containment. We want to create a container for the system to come together, be in a room, and try to solve their complex adaptive challenge. Creating this container or establishing this containment is a form of the next type of context that we're trying to create, which is to purposefully introduce internal and external constraints. An internal constraint could be, as I mentioned, just creating a container for people to come together. And it's that containment that creates a constraint, a positive constraint to help force transformative change to occur. An external constraint could be an example of certain conditions or goals that have been set forth by the senior management of an organization. And lastly, we're wanting to establish a certain amount of psychological safety, a sense of community within that particular context. And so all together then, all of these elements form the context that we're intentionally trying to orchestrate 
And the reason that we do this is that in creating this context, it produces a specific type of environment or climate. The climate that we're trying to create is one where there are autocatalytic dynamics occurring. So to say it in different words, there's conflict and there's anxiety. Conflict and anxiety can be tools of change as opposed to being things that disrupt change or prevent change from occurring. In this particular context, we are wanting to leverage conflict and leverage anxiety as actual tools of change. Also in this climate, it's going to be characterized by a dissipation of tension. When you bring a system together in a room that has different perspectives and point of views, again, echoing back to the maximizing diversity comment earlier, there's going to be tension. Tension of these different perspectives and point of views colliding with one another in the course of the dialogue. And with this conflict, with this anxiety, with this tension, it leads to disruption. It leads to a certain amount of uncertainty of what's to come. It leads to turbulence amongst and between people. And again, this might sound anti what we're wanting to do, but this is exactly the type of climate necessary to create transformative type of change. Also characteristic of this climate are direct and indirect feedback loops. This is what is occurring between those dynamic connections and exchanges and interactions that I discussed earlier. And because of all these connections and exchanges, the environment with which we've created is rapidly changing. New demands are emerging in the moment based on comments made to another and vice versa. If one were to look down at balcony view on this type of environment, this climate that we've created, they would see quite a bit of nonlinear emergence occurring. You would see random connections. You would see random conversations. None of this could be pre-planned. None of these types of interactions would be necessarily linear. And so we see a lot of nonlinear emergence, and that's exactly the type of climate that we're looking to create. And lastly, we're wanting to make sure that there's a, an element of safety and trust and community, as without these things, there is no conversation. There is no sense of vulnerability that exists that would allow change to actually occur. All right, so together then, creating this particular context, which we are intentional about, to produce a certain type of climate or environment, together, this represents creating the conditions for transformational change to occur. And when you do this, it's going to result in evoking certain new patterns of behavior. Patterns, I might add, that are necessary that we're looking for to help ultimately realize our desired outcomes. So the patterns that we often see are new creativity, a new sense of innovation or greater innovation, people's assumptions being challenged, people's mindsets being changed, their underlying assumptions, values, beliefs being changed in the moment. There's an aggregation of ideas that are occurring because of all of this nonlinear emergence. Real transformational learning is occurring. People show up to dialogic-based events with their own baggage, with their own mental filters, as we've talked about earlier. But in the course of dialogue, in the course of conversation, and in the course of being in the presence of great diversity, it is quite easy to witness or observe transformational learning occurring in the moment. We also see patterns of new narratives or generative images occurring. We see a self-reflection or awareness that people are experiencing sort of in the moment, a self-reflection of their own thoughts, their own thinking. We see a self-organization occurring, new alliances, new networks being born. And as part of that, we see correlated action. People now coming together 
to solve for a common goal. And lastly, but maybe most importantly, we see an information exchange. We see storytelling, one telling stories to another and vice versa. And as I mentioned earlier, we see a certain amount of vulnerability being exposed. And it's that type of vulnerability that leads to new outcomes. So collectively, these new patterns of behavior represent the mechanisms of transformational change. And with these new patterns of behavior come new outcomes, specifically creating these types of conditions to produce these patterns of behavior result in a new shared understanding amongst people. It results in a shared intention of where to go, of how to address the complex adaptive challenge. It results in aligned actions amongst people. And unbeknownst to all, we're transforming relations in the process. Transform relations, in fact, is the most enduring aspect or part of creating the conditions for change to occur. So in summary, we could say that a reformulation of existing elements to produce different types of adaptive responses to challenge is what's happening here. We are seeing new patterns of seeing, thinking, and acting. And this represents the adaptive capacity or capability of an organization to change itself, to change for the better. As a change agent, if you're looking to help an organization address their complex adaptive challenges, it requires understanding and leveraging complexity. And as I mentioned on the previous slide, it's really about creating the conditions for change to occur as opposed to trying to make change happen. Creating the conditions for change to occur leads to long-term sustainable change, the type of change that everyone is looking for. All right, a 10th strategy to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career is to reimagine yourself, to elevate your professional identity from where you are, whether serving as an OD practitioner, a change management professional, or a business transformation consultant, to where you really need to be, which is to be a system leader. What is a system leader, you ask? Well, in the parlance of systems leadership theory, a system leader is someone who is able to facilitate catalyze and bring forth collective leadership amongst several diverse others in a social system to transform that system. It is instructive to think of a system leader as a conductor of processes and people, facilitating a team and its complex of relationships from a shared understanding to transformed intention to aligned actions to achieving a common goal. All right, to elevate and transform oneself from where you are to becoming a system leader, it requires developing three key capabilities. The first key capability is to have the ability to convene and engage several diverse others from across the system. In other words, to expose difference in a system, to get all to see the larger system in the various points of views and perspectives that comprise the system. And the reason we want to develop this key capability, as we've talked about earlier, people often show up to workshops or meetings with their own narrow points of view, their own lived histories or mental frames. And so our job as system leader is to get others to see difference in a system, not only see difference, but appreciate difference, to get all to see the various points of views and perspectives that comprise a system from end to end. A second capability to develop is to create the ability to foster reflection and generative dialogue amongst a diverse group of people. This also includes having the skill to create containers, container building, 
In addition to managing the disruption and emergence that naturally occurs when you create these complex conditions, having the ability to foster reflection and generative dialogue amongst a group of diverse people is how we catalyze systemic change. It is how we bring forth change. And the last capability to develop is to develop the ability to help individuals, teams, and the broader organization to vision and engage with and co-create the future by transforming the present. All right, so now that we've introduced the three key capabilities to elevate yourself to become a system leader, let's unpack each of those capabilities individually to understand what are the developmental focus areas. In other words, what do I need to do to create each of those three key capabilities? All right, capability number one, the ability to see the larger system. So what are the developmental focus areas to develop this capability? Well, the first focus area is to learn about systems leadership theory. A core element of systems leadership theory is adopting a systems thinking orientation, essentially to see and work with holes. And the reason this is important is that, as we've talked about earlier, typically people show up to workshops or meeting situations with their own baggage, their own mental models, their own ways of seeing and thinking that often leads to very narrow views of the broader end-to-end -end or the whole. And so our role as systems leader is to help them see the whole and to work with holes, to work with the whole of the situation. As I like to say, you need to become an advocate for the whole. Another developmental focus area is to learn about ecosystem thinking or to adopt ecosystem thinking. Essentially, what this is about is extending one's seeing and thinking beyond just one's context to consider the periphery of things, the outer edges, the margins of not only your organization, but the industry that you work in and even the ecosystem within which that industry exists. Getting an organization or a group of people to think beyond their own context often leads to breakthrough transformation. And it's for this reason that you, as systems leader, need to develop your own ecosystem thinking awareness to help others do the same. The third developmental focus area is to understand organization design. Part of the ability to see the larger system is to have the capability to design the larger system. As the majority of us focus our work at the organization level, it's important to understand the different design frameworks to help us design the whole of an organization's structure. And there are a number of leading frameworks out there from the 7S model to the Burke-Litwin model to the STAR model. Each of these models focus on designing the whole of an organization. And so in that regard, learning about organization design does help us create the ability to see the larger system, in this particular case, the organizational system. Another developmental focus area to develop the capability of seeing the larger system is to learn about scenario planning. If you're not familiar with scenario planning, it's a practice that developed in the 60s and considers both macro and micro forces to construct plausible stories of the future. And we develop these stories of the future to help, in effect, transform the present. The value in learning about scenario planning is that it forces us to consider all the macro and micro forces that might impact our organization. And in considering all of those forces, by default, it broadens everyone's horizon both the one actually doing the work, that is constructing the scenarios, 
but also all those involved in reviewing the scenarios, in considering those stories. And so in learning about scenario planning as a discipline and bringing this to your organization, it helps everyone, both yourself as the facilitator, the practitioner, and all others to see the larger system. So collectively then, learning about systems leadership theory, learning about ecosystem thinking, learning about organization design, and learning about scenario planning all collectively will help you develop the capability of being able to see the larger system. This represents the first key capability of becoming a system leader. Capability number two, the ability to foster reflection in generative dialogue. So what are the developmental focus areas to develop this specific capability? Well, the first developmental focus area is to understand dialogue, to understand the dialogic method. Dialogue, as it turns out, is the superordinate skill to master, to get others to engage in a dialogic way, which, as hopefully you've learned throughout this workshop, dialogue really is the basis for solving all complex problems. Only when people decide to come together to share their stories, to discuss the issues, to learn of each other's perspectives and point of views, and then later to think of different solutions to address those issues. Only when we do that can we solve our complex adaptive challenges. And dialogue is the underlying practice of making all of that happen. So learning dialogue and the dialogic method, this does indeed represent a superordinate skill to master. Another developmental focus area is to learn about both diagnostic and dialogic OD methods, tools, and techniques. Both forms contribute to creating the conditions for generative dialogue to occur. Wherever you are in your career, whether you're serving as an OD practitioner or a change management professional or business transformation consultant, I would encourage you to learn more about both the diagnostic and the dialogic OD methods, tools, and techniques. Doing so will only bolster your ability to foster reflection and generative dialogue in others. Another developmental focus area is to learn about large group process methods in facilitation. So large group process methods are the mechanism by which we engage diverse others in a dialogic discussion. And we do that by purposefully or intentionally designing and facilitating large group change processes. So when I refer to large group process methods, I'm referring to those that you are probably already familiar with, like the circle method, appreciative inquiry, open space, or the world cafe. To the extent that you are aware of multiple of these large group process methods and how to facilitate each will increase your ability to foster reflection and generative dialogue in others. Yet another developmental focus area is to learn about reflective journaling. Knowing of and teaching others how to use a reflective learning journal is key to developing the discipline to engage in personal reflection and to deepen learning. Most people that I meet in a workshop setting are not active journalers. That is, they do not have a discipline of engaging in reflective journaling. And this might be perhaps your story as well. In either case, Learning of reflective journaling, both for yourself and for others, is going to be necessary to develop this particular capability. Another developmental focus area is to learn about cognitive psychology. So this is really about knowing of the cognitive biases that affect all of us and that show up in workshop settings. Each of us suffers from numerous cognitive biases that we're often unaware of. And when these biases show up in a workshop setting, it often leads to unnecessary conflict and diminished results. 
So learning of cognitive biases will not only help you as the facilitator, but more importantly, it'll help guide a team to actually engage in a meaningful, generative dialogue and flow. So another developmental focus area is to learn about complexity leadership theory. Earlier, we talked about the importance of leveraging complexity and embracing uncertainty as key to creating the conditions for transformative change to occur. I could modify my earlier statement to say that complexity leadership theory or leveraging complexity is also vital to create the conditions for generative dialogue to occur. And so what is really needed here is for each of us to adopt a complexity-informed mindset, to adopt a complexity-informed design and approach to our work. Learning about complexity leadership theory can help us better facilitate a generative dialogue of others. Another developmental focus area is to learn about mindfulness or to embrace the discipline of mindfulness. Mindfulness is about developing the capacity to maintain an awareness of both self and others in terms of one seeing, thinking, and behaving. And being aware of such things, especially one's thinking, is critical to engage in an effective dialogue with others. Personally, I have found this to be the most challenging of all the developmental focus areas as maintaining awareness can easily come and go. The challenge, as we've talked about earlier, is to maintain that awareness in the moment on an ongoing basis. To the extent that we maintain our own mindfulness, our own awareness of self, and help others do the same, determines the effectiveness with which we will be able to engage in a reflective and generative dialogue with others. Yet another developmental focus area to develop the ability to foster reflection in generative dialogue is to learn about social constructionism and sense-making. It is important for you to understand that each of us suffers from one or more cognitive biases, and so there is very little of anything in life that we can be truly objective about as our biases get in the way. And this is where social constructionism and sense-making become relevant, where in learning these two things, you understand that our reality, in fact, is actually socially constructed moment-to-moment, interaction-to-interaction, and person-to-person. And understanding that this is how reality is actually created addresses the big why of needing to engage in dialogue with others as it is only through engaging in dialogue with others that we actually create our reality. Another development focus area that actually feeds upon social constructionism and sense-making is to learn about participative narrative inquiry, or PNI. PNI is about learning about each other's perspectives and point of views through storytelling, through the telling of stories, or a sharing of narratives. Storytelling, as it turns out, is the gateway to authentic connection and change with other individuals. It is also the way in which that we introduce our own personal sense of vulnerability into a situation. And it's this vulnerability, more often than not, that serves to crack the nut, that serves to deepen the conversation to a level where transformative change is able to occur among individuals and broader groups. Like all the developmental areas we've already talked about, PNI is vital to fostering reflection and generative dialogue in others. It is an ancient practice that's been practiced for thousands of years, and being skilled in its use can only help you as a facilitator of large group processes. It can only help you in developing authentic connection and change 
with a diverse group of others. And the last developmental focus area to develop the capability or the ability to foster reflection and generative dialogue in others is to learn about how to actively listen to another human being, in addition to learning about how to ask strategic questions or powerful questions. I think of active listening and strategic questioning as sort of the yin and yang of dialogue. With active listening, we learn of others' points of view. We learn about their perspectives, and with strategic questioning, they in turn learn of ours. So these 10 different developmental focus areas collectively will help us develop the capability or the ability to foster reflection and generative dialogue in others. Capability number three, the ability to vision the future. So what are the developmental focus areas to develop this capability? Well, the first developmental focus area is to learn about experimentation, to learn about how to design experiments. As it states here, knowing how to design and conduct experiments, including using an experimental record sheet, is vital to solving complex adaptive challenges. Earlier, we talked about hybrid OD, and one of the key sequences of hybrid OD is the experiential sequence, where we're actually conducting experiments. Experiments, as it turns out, is how we actually solve complex adaptive challenges. With complex adaptive challenges, as we've talked about before, we can only see 20 feet ahead of ourselves at any given moment. Hence, the only way forward is by conducting experiments, about taking one step at a time. And with each step taken, the path is illuminated that much further. Another developmental focus area that goes hand in hand with experimentation is to learn about and leverage the Agile method, to learn about iterative development. As I just mentioned, solving complex adaptive challenges is emergent work, and we can only see 20 feet ahead of ourselves at any given moment. Hence, to make any progress, we must iterate our way forward. We learn from that iteration, and then we repeat. Although Agile, as we talked about earlier, got its start with information technology or within IT, it is a universal practice that can be applied really to solving any types of challenges or problems, especially those that are of the complex variety. Another developmental focus area to help us vision the future is to learn about strategic foresight or edge work. As it states, engaging the edges of your organization, your ecosystem and beyond is vital to ensure all perspectives are heard and represented. We do this to surface different patterns or ideas and breakthrough innovations that are simply not accessible to individuals working alone. To effectively solve complex adaptive challenges, we must engage in strategic foresight. We must incorporate it into our work. Again, as we've talked about in the earlier section on hybrid OD, strategic foresight plays a role in each sequence of the hybrid OD model. In the diagnostic sequence, we leverage strategic foresight to engage the edges of our organization, the industry in which we operate within, and the ecosystem within which the industry itself operates within and even perhaps beyond. In the dialogic sequence, we're bringing the system in its entirety into the room so as to transform that system. And so by default, we are engaging the edges of the system. We also engage in edge work in the dialogic sequence through the questions that we ask and through the different dialogues that we facilitate during our participatory-based events. And lastly, we leverage strategic foresight in the experiential sequence. 
through the conducting of experiments, through experimenting our way forward, through cutting through the fog to discover new ground. Another developmental focus area is to learn about action learning. Action learning is an experiential learning method in which participants learn by doing and then reflecting on what they have done to inform course corrections and next steps. Earlier, we learned about the PEARL framework, which is embedded as part of the broader hybrid OD methodology. And with PEARL, we engage in action learning by first planning experiments. Then we conduct experiments. Then we assess how did the experiment go relative to what we expected it to go. We reflect on those assessments, and then we capture our learnings in the form of course corrections or next steps. Action learning is a key discipline not only to vision the future, but also to bring forth the future. Critical thinking is yet another developmental focus area, and this is the ability to persistently reflect on one's own thinking while simultaneously being open to others' thinking, that is, others' perspectives and point of view, to arrive at the best solution. Critical thinking, sadly, is not a developed practice amongst most people, practitioners included. Hence, this is one of the more important areas to develop. Not only must we persistently reflect on our own thinking, we need to get others to do the same. And when we do this, as it states here, we're able to produce our most inclusive or holistic solutions. And lastly, we need to learn about design thinking. Design thinking complements and extends all other developmental areas by emphasizing being empathetic towards others, in challenging underlying assumptions, and experimentation via prototypes, testing, and trials of new concepts and ideas. Design thinking incorporates all of these things and therefore bolsters the other five developmental focus areas for capability number three. And so collectively, these six developmental focus areas will help you develop the ability to both vision and co-create the future. All right, so at this point, I've shared with you 10 strategies to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career. But we're not done yet. I believe in over-delivering. And so here is an 11th strategy to help you elevate, revitalize, and transform your career. Strategy number 11, become a master architect with designing innovation sequences, aka dialogic-based events, processes, and platforms. Now, there are several elements that comprise a well-formed innovation sequence. The first thing that we need to think through is the end state. What is the end state of our innovation sequence? In other words, as we're walking out of the dialogic-based event, what are we hoping for? So we need to begin with the end in mind, a clear vision of your intended direction of travel, of what better looks like, and your end state, depending on what your goals are for your dialogic-based event, could be about resolving a conflict that might exist between two organizations or two departments or some other type of conflict. It could be about visioning the future. It could be about re-engineering a process or maybe exploiting an emerging opportunity. Whatever it is, you need to be clear before you start designing your innovation sequence of what your end state looks like. Once you're clear on the end state, you can then think about the specific movements that occur from the beginning of your dialogic-based event to the end. And there are three primary movements that define 
an innovation sequence. There are diverge movements where people and ideas are moving apart purposefully. There are converge movements where people and ideas are moving together. And then in between diverge and converge, there's emerge movements. These are often referred to as the grown zone or the gray zone. It's the space in between diverging and converging. And so a well-formed innovation sequence will actually include multiple of these movements, multiple diverge movements, emerge movements, and converge movements. If you're interested in learning more about specific movements, there's a good book by Bella Banathy called Designing Social Systems in a Changing World. All right, another key consideration to develop a well-formed innovation sequence is to consider or to think through the various diagnostic, dialogic, and learning journey tools and tactics that you may employ as part of your innovation sequence. For example, prior to an innovation sequence, you may first want to conduct some diagnostic work to bring those findings into the dialogic sequence. Some of the tools that you can use to perform your diagnostics include conducting dialogic interviews, doing narrative harvesting, conducting surveys, conducting focus groups, doing some desk research. You might be conducting some internal assessments or maybe performing a benchmarking study. So all of these various diagnostic tools can help you develop an understanding of the current state and then to bring that information into your innovation sequence to be used as part of your dialogic event. Within the dialogic event, then, we focus on the specific methodologies that might be used as mechanisms to support dialogic inquiry. So tools such as the World Cafe or Open Space Technology or the Circle Method tools that we've talked about before. And lastly, you may consider introducing some learning journey sojourns into your innovation sequence. For example, introducing empathy walks or scheduling a field trip out into the field to see how things operate at the edges. You may consider planning a cultural immersion journey or sponsoring an action research study. So whatever it is, these are just different considerations, different tools to help you design your innovation sequence. Another key consideration is to think about the different forms of connectivity that will comprise your innovation sequence. So for example, what type of individual activities may you design as part of your sequence? Perhaps there's instances where having individuals or participants engage in a self-reflective activity is necessary or needed or helpful. In this particular case, you'll want to schedule that individual activity as part of your broader end-to-end -end sequence. In addition to that, you could schedule paired activities. As I just mentioned in the learning journey tactics above, you may want to schedule a paired walk activity, also referred to as an empathy walk activity where maybe you bring people together who have divergent or different points of views or perspectives, and you want them to open up to each other so that individuals can understand the point of view and perspective of the other. You may want to schedule a circle exercise. And this is often very common in a dialogic-based event where you schedule activities in the plenary, where the full group is coming together for some type of instruction or knowledge share or providing feedback, for example, from having participated in various subgroup activities. 
You may schedule a panel activity whereby you bring in leading experts to share their perspective and point of view on a particular topic that's relevant for the event that you are hosting. Another very common feature in any innovation sequence is to schedule breakout activities where you take the broader group, the larger group, and break them up into multiple different subteams to consider a challenging question, to ponder some research, and for the subgroup to think about that research or to think about that specific challenging question, and then bring back the results of their discussion to the broader group in the form of a knowledge share. Similar to breakouts is to schedule station type of activities. These are often very common when you're leveraging the open space technology method, where each station represents a breakout of some different topic or idea for people to consider based on their interests. The use of stations is also very common in designing innovation sequences. And lastly, you may schedule a cohort type of activity as part of your innovation sequence something that the entire cohort is going to participate in. So, in fact, this might be an example of a group taking a field trip, going out into the field to explore the edges. Or similarly, it might be something as like taking a vision quest or participating in a longer-term cultural immersion journey. So as you think through your broader end-to-end -end innovation sequence, you need to be thinking about all these different forms of connectivity, individual activities, paired activities, circle or full plenary activities, panel discussion, breakout activities in the form of small table gatherings or station gatherings, and cohort activities. As you'll see in an example on a later slide, I'll share with you an event that I designed that included multiple of these different types of forms of connectivity. Another key consideration when designing your innovation sequence is to think through the various logistics of the event itself. There are a number of different considerations, the first of which is event location. If at all possible, I'd recommend that you conduct your event off-site from the organization itself and, if possible, in a serene, quiet location that would allow for hard thinking to occur. A second consideration is room arrangement. With this, you're going to want to pick a room that's large enough to accommodate not only all of your participants, but also you need to think about wall space. Oftentimes, in a dialogic-based event, you're leveraging wall space to hang up post-it sheets or post-it notes or some other type of visual item, perhaps even a poster. So you want to make sure that you have enough wall space to accommodate all of what you're wanting or needing to do. A third consideration are the special requirements of your guests. Special requirements regarding food or accommodations. Maybe security is a particularly important consideration for your event. Perhaps medical staff is also an important consideration. What special technology requirements might be needed for your event? So you need to think through all of these special requirements as well. Another key consideration is the audiovisual. Will your event be videotaped? If so, you're going to need to think through the different equipment that you'll need to do that effectively. Will it require a special team with different knowledge, skills, and capabilities to just focus on the audio and visual? These are considerations you'll need to think through. What supplies and resources are you going to need to be successful with conducting your dialogic-based event? The typical items of large post-it note sheets, smaller post-its, markers, pens, things of that nature. 
You'll need to think through all of the various supplies and resources to make your event a success. You'll need to think about the duration and the cadence of your event. So is your event a one-day event? Is it going to span a day and a half? Will it be a five-day event? Or perhaps it's a multi-day cascading event that will take place over several weeks or months. So you need to think about the duration and the cadence of your event up front. You'll need to think about the extracurricular activities that you may want to schedule as part of your dialogic event. For example, maybe conducting a field trip or planning some type of cohort vision quest, for example. These are things that you're going to want to consider and plan for well in advance of conducting your event. And lastly, you want to think through the documentation requirements for the event. What do you need to bring into the event in terms of documentation in the form of a pre-read? How are you going to capture the content of the event in real time? And what might be the outcomes of the event in terms of documentation? Maybe perhaps a report that will be produced. These are also considerations that you'll want to think about as part of your broader end-to-end -end innovation sequence design. All right, so let's go ahead and try to summarize all of the various components that comprise your innovation sequence. As the previous slides have indicated, we design innovation sequences by integrating multiple different parts to form a more important whole. And we begin with the end in mind by thinking about our end goal. What is it that we're hoping to achieve with our innovation sequence? Then we consider the various movements, the various diverge, emerge, and converge movements that will make up our event. How do we sequence those various movements in a way that will achieve the outcomes that we're looking for? What learning journey tools and tactics are we going to leverage throughout the dialogic event, including what diagnostic tools might we employ pre-event to capture our current state understanding and bring that knowledge bring that content with us into the dialogic event itself? What forms of connectivity will support and drive the various strategic conversations that we're wanting to trigger amongst meeting participants? And finally, what logistics do we need to think through to ensure our event is successful and that it's well received by all the various attendees, participants? As you design your innovation sequence, know this. The integration of the right components in the right sequence is the key to unlocking system transformation, to achieving your hoped-for goals. All right, now that we've covered the various components that comprise designing an end-to-end -end innovation sequence and help you become a master architect in your own right, I'm going to share with you a case study of an event that I designed that will highlight or showcase many of the various components that we just discussed. All right, so the case that I'm going to share with you is about resolving an intractable multi-stakeholder issue. This event was designed over a one and a half day period, and the planning for the event actually began upwards of about 45 days pre-event. And what we were doing pre-event was conducting story harvesting. We were harvesting stories from a number of key stakeholders within the system. And the way that we did this was to conduct a number of one-on-one -on -one dialogue interviews to gather feedback, to capture the different perspectives of both the issue and perhaps how to resolve the issue. Several dozen interviews were conducted in this pre-event exercise. And at the end of the exercise, we prepared a sanitized report that was provided in the form of a pre-read activity approximately one week prior to the event itself. 
The movement in this particular activity was divergent in nature, and the connection was pairs. The first day of our event occurred in the afternoon. It was just a PM session, which represents the 0.5 day of the one and a half day event. The first thing that we did on day one was to conduct an orientation and a check-in amongst the attendees or the participants. During this activity, we covered the event objectives, reviewed the agenda for the day. We did a round of team introductions where people were able to share what intentions they were bringing with them into the event. Our goal here with this particular activity was to make sure that all voices were heard. This represents another divergent activity and the connection form was circle. With our check-in complete, we then segued to a new activity, which was to understand the current state. As you might recall, pre-event, we conducted a number of one-on-one -on -one dialogue interviews to harvest different stories, different perspectives and point of views of both the issue and ways to resolve the issue. Now, during our event, we're wanting to play back that information in the aggregate for people to respond to and to discuss amongst their colleagues. So the way we planned this was to leverage the World Cafe method, where we had three rounds of discussion. And during these three rounds of discussion, participants in the form of subteams discussed the interview findings, they shared their stories, they also spent time understanding the narratives of others. It was a time for individuals to share their perspectives on the issue, what they felt were the root causes of the issue, and even ways to help solve the issue. The movement here was also divergent in nature, and the connection is breakout dialogues. This activity took up the bulk of our day one planning, and we concluded day one with a self-reflection exercise. The exercise was for individual participants or attendees to write an essay from the point of view of being outside the system of what the system looks like, and a separate essay from the point of view of being inside the system, essentially addressing the question, how am I contributing to the problem? What we are trying to do with the self-reflection is to get people to recognize and acknowledge that as much as there is an out there perspective, there's also very much an in here perspective as well. This represents an emergent movement, and the connection is individual reflection. So this concluded day one of our innovation sequence. Day two, which represented a full day of activity, started off with a day one recap and check-in. So as we did on day one, we started off with a check-in of the intentions that people were bringing to the workshop. We did a day one recap discussion. We did a little bit of light discussion around key learnings and insights and then we reviewed the agenda for the day. This represents a divergent movement and the connection with Circle. After our check-in, we wanted to see where people were at individually, what was emerging for the attendees individually. And so we scheduled a paired walk exercise that would allow two individuals with different perspectives and different points of view to share and discuss each person's point of view and what was emerging for them individually. This is an important activity to get others to consider points of view that might be quite different from their own. The movement here was emergent and the connection was pairs. After having individuals spend time discussing what was emerging for them individually, we then segued to a new activity to understand what was emerging collectively for the entire group. And for this, we brought people together in the form of a circle. 
the connection was circle in a plenary session. And this was an emergent discussion. We were discussing emerging opportunities amongst the entire group, where people were sharing stories, trying to understand the future state narratives that were emerging, understand where there might be shared interests, shared intentions. Essentially, we were looking to leverage the collective wisdom, the collective voice of the group. After the team had time to discuss what was emerging collectively for them, we then segued into an activity for the team to explore possibility-centric future state opportunities, leveraging the open space technology method. With this method, we leveraged the connection of stations, and in true open space way, people followed their own energy on what interested them most in terms of brainstorming opportunities. As an open space event, it generated quite a bit of excitement and commitment and engagement from all involved. This activity was characterized as a convergent movement, where we were looking for opportunities to help resolve or solve the intractable issue. And lastly, the team came together in the form of a circle or plenary activity to define their change agenda, to align on different improvement areas based on the prior discussion. Individual concerns and questions were addressed during this plenary discussion. Next steps were planned and initiative owners and volunteers were identified. At the end of that, we did a checkout and the event concluded. This last activity represented a converge movement as well. So as you can see, there are a number of different steps involved in planning a innovation sequence, a dialogic-based event. There are multiple different activities to design, to sequence, different movements to consider, different connections to consider. My guidance for you as a OD practitioner or change professional or business transformation consultant is to learn how to design innovation sequences. Become a master architect with designing innovation sequences. As our world becomes more complex and unpredictable, Possessing the skill to architect a dialogic-based end-to-end innovation sequence will be of very high value. All right, we've reached the end of the workshop, so let me share with you the 11 strategies to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career. The first strategy was to transition from physical places to digital spaces. Learning and leveraging multiple digital canvas tools to design and facilitate large group processes will only serve you professionally. The second strategy was to adopt a hybrid OD approach to your practice and work. You might recall hybrid OD is about integrating diagnostic, dialogic, and experiential OD methods, tools, and techniques to solve our most intractable organizational challenges. Hybrid OD represents the future of organization development. And so knowing and leveraging this methodology can only serve you going forward. I would encourage you to read through the hybrid OD ebook that was provided to you as a gift to participating in this workshop. The third strategy was to initiate a follow the energy approach to bringing forth the new. We are operating in tuna conditions today. Turbulence, uncertainty, novelty, ambiguity. We see it every day. Getting out of your comfort zone and adopting a just-do approach can only serve you in the future. Our fourth strategy was to focus on inner work to transform limiting beliefs and patterns. Remember how you show up when facilitating complex change events and how others show up to participate in complex change events ultimately determines the extent to which you solve your complex adaptive challenge. 
And it's for this reason that we must focus on inner work. The fifth strategy was to learn and leverage multiple dialogic large group methods. As I mentioned, you may want to consider attending one of the Art of Hosting events where they teach you four of the leading large group methods, Appreciative Inquiry, Circle Method, Open Space, and the World Cafe. In fact, the case study I just shared with you included all four of those methods. I leveraged Appreciative Inquiry during the diagnostic sequence we were collecting or harvesting stories in the form of one-on-one -on -one dialogic interviews. And then during the day and a half long event, we leveraged open space, we leveraged the circle method, and we leveraged the World Cafe. Learning and leveraging multiple dialogic large group methods can only serve you going forward. The sixth strategy is to be strategic, to integrate a strategic frame in all that you do. To have leadership refer to our work as being non-strategic or below the radar, or limited to HR or people-related tasks is both constraining and highly disappointing. So it's up to us to integrate what we do to helping our organizations achieve their strategic objectives, to help them achieve their strategic goals. And to the extent that we do that, we feel better about ourselves and we feel better about the work that we do because our work is now perceived as being strategic, as being mission critical. A seventh strategy is to engage the emerging future to transform the present. William Gibson said it best where he said, the future is already here. It is just not evenly distributed. I would highly encourage you to learn to see around the corners of things, to incorporate strategic foresight into your daily work, to learn how to engage the edges of your organization, the industry in which you operate in, and the ecosystem that contains it all. Not only is engaging the edges exciting and fun, you can help your organization learn and innovate faster, which could help them create a competitive advantage of the highest order. The eighth strategy was to pulse faster, leveraging the iterative method, aka Agile. We are operating today in an Industry 4.0 world, and in that world, we need a rapid innovation framework that's attuned to help us solve our complex adaptive challenges. Agile is that tool. Agile helps us adapt to the rapidly accelerating pace of innovation today. Agile helps us adapt to the unpredictability that exists in the world today. And Agile helps us learn more quickly by failing fast. The ninth strategy was to create the conditions for change to occur. I can't emphasize enough the need to understand and leverage complexity, to take a complexity-informed approach and design to all that you do to adopt a complexity-attuned mindset. Only when we understand complexity can we create the conditions for change to occur to help us solve our complex adaptive challenges. With a complexity-attuned mind, we understand the need to foster certain conditions, to create a certain climate, to provoke certain patterns of behavior, to help us achieve the outcomes that we're looking for. Strategy number 10 was to reimagine yourself from where you are to becoming a system leader. A system leader is someone who is able to facilitate, catalyze, and bring forth collective leadership amongst diverse others. The system leader role will be the most important change management role in the future. A role that is relied upon to exist in all social systems to help transform those systems. And lastly, bonus strategy number 11, become a master architect with designing innovation sequences. 
If you want to differentiate yourself in the marketplace, become a master architect with designing innovation sequences. Few people do this well, so make it your goal to be one of the best. There you go, 11 strategies to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career. You are now equipped to offer more, be more, and live more, whether serving as an OD practitioner, change management professional, or business transformation consultant. I encourage you to deepen your understanding of all of these 11 strategies and to integrate each and every one of them in your daily work. Each one of these strategies can indeed elevate, revitalize, and transform your career. It did for me, and they can do the same for you.